Spring of 1635 was a tumultuous time in English America. At the same time as Massachusetts settlers were preparing to stand off with the king on the subject of a royally appointed governor, Puritans in Virginia deposed their own governor and fomented violent confrontation with neighboring Marylanders. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. Two weeks after the seizure of the Longtail, William Claiborne sent an armed pinnace called the Cockatrice with a crew of 14 people led by Lieutenant Warren to go to St. Mary's and demand the return of his pinnace. He also instructed them to seize whatever vessels they could which belonged to the Maryland government in retaliation for the seizure. Calvert, however, was prepared for a clash, and so he sent Captain Cornwallis with two armed pinnaces, the St. Margaret and the St. Helen, up the Pocomoke River to force the cockatrice to stand down. The ships saw each other and slowly inched towards each other, each side waiting for the other to make the first move. When they were within range, Warren's soldiers opened fire, instantly killing one Marylander named William Ashmore and injuring several others. Cornwallis's men returned the fire, killing three of Claiborne's crew, including Warren, after which the rest of the men surrendered and Cornwallis took his prisoners and their ship back to St. Mary's. Four days later, in Virginia, members of Matthew's faction presented Governor Harvey with a list of grievances, and his support of Maryland was at the top of the list. They said that he had reduced Virginia to a great strait by complying with the Marylanders, so far that between them and himself, all places of corn were shut up from them, and no means was left to relieve their wants without transgressing his commands, which was very dangerous for any to attempt. Now, this was at the very least a bit melodramatic, and Harvey was absolutely furious. He tried to have three of the rebels arrested and demanded that they be tried under martial law, but the council backed the rebels. In the confrontation, Harvey shoved one of the council members and said he'd arrest him on suspicion of treason to the king, but John Udy responded, And the like to you, sir. They forced Harvey into his seat, surrounded him with fifty musketeers, and told him that they planned to send him back to England to answer complaints against him. At first he refused, but with no real hope of keeping his position, he agreed to go back to England two days later. And in his place, the council elected John West governor. John West was, of course, the brother of Lord Delaware and Francis West, the former Jamestown governor and one of Claiborne's strongest supporters. The only person from Harvey's faction who remained in a position of any authority whatsoever was Richard Kemp, who remained the colony's secretary. And Claiborne kept sending traitors up the Potomac, and the Marylanders kept driving them away. And a couple weeks after the first shootout, the Marylanders nearly captured another pinnace. 
Shots were fired and a couple of people were injured, but no one was killed. And the ship's captain, Philip Taylor, escaped at the last minute and returned to Virginia. Given later allusions to Kent Island behavior, it seems likely that Taylor's vessel was joined at the last minute by another armed pinnace which helped it escape. Now, whether or not Claiborne had a legitimate claim to Kent Island, he had at this point attacked colonists with a patent from the king, and he hadn't been successful in forcing Calvert to back down. The attack had been a gamble, and it was an unsuccessful one, so he fled to Virginia's sympathetic government for protection. But Calvert knew that he was dealing with an existential struggle for his colony, so he sent commissioners to Jamestown to demand that Claiborne be turned over for punishment as a rebel and a traitor. Instead, the new government sent Claiborne to England, where they said he could have a fairer trial. They did, however, send commissioners to Maryland to establish the peace. Failing to establish the peace at this point would have been a lose-lose proposition for both colonies. Maryland was still too weak to effectively defend itself from Virginia, and neither colony could deal with the PR fallout of more conflict. For the next year and a half, the battle would be fought in the courts of England, so both colonies wanted to show themselves to be the wronged party and the reasonable party, not the aggressor. So, West agreed not to challenge Maryland's patent anymore, and Calvert agreed to leave the Kent Islanders alone until the issue was settled and fought in the courts of England it was. The Privy Council ordered both parties to be examined before the Attorney General, and as Harvey pled his case, Maryland was part of his argument. He said that the day he agreed to help Maryland was one of the happiest of his life, but it is to be feared that they intend no less than the subjection of Maryland, for whilst I was aboard the ship and ready to depart the colony, there arrived William Claiborne from the Isle of Kent with news of a hostile encounter twixt some of his people and those of Maryland. Meanwhile, West assured the council that Virginia had only done what it needed to to protect itself, and it had never intended to infringe on Baltimore's grant. And to represent Maryland, Jerome Hawley returned to England to justify Cornwallis's conduct in the skirmish, as well as to address rumors which were starting to circulate about Maryland. Some people said that Maryland had only been planted with the purpose of establishing the Romish religion, and another rumor was that one of Winter's servants had declared it lawful and ineritorious to kill a heretic king. The tendency to plots and regicide was certainly a stereotype people held of Catholics at this time, but it also needs to be noted that this was an accusation about the Winter's servant, with two Winters having been involved in the gunpowder plot. So, you can see the kind of intensity that this debate was provoking, both between future royalists and future parliamentarians, 
as well as against Catholics in a colony which had tried its best to allow a refuge for Catholicism while avoiding presenting the image of being an overtly Catholic colony. And as part of this first round of arguments in England, under interrogation, Hawley was forced to admit that Mass was celebrated publicly in Maryland. So almost immediately, the debate was extremely intense, but King Charles confirmed his support of Baltimore's patent and said that he would never issue a quo warranto against it, nor let any grant or commission pass which might encroach on Baltimore's rights. He also ordered that Harvey be sent back to Virginia, though this didn't actually happen for a year or two. In the meantime, West continued as acting governor. Life back in Maryland was relatively calm, though. They traded, planted, built, and grew. Baltimore was continuously working to attract settlers and clergy for the colony, publishing pamphlets advertising the attractions of the area, and giving advice to people considering moving there. New families arrived and others sent for more servants, and as they bought indentured servants, they worked hard to ensure that Catholic indentured servants ended up in Maryland instead of elsewhere in English America. White and Altum continued to preach, to care for the sick and dying, and to convert the local tribes, as well as the Protestant servants in the colony. Quite a few members of both groups did convert, including all of the servants who had been working for the Jesuits. Attendance at the sacraments was large, and though the priests weren't permitted to put themselves at risk by going to visit the tribes of the interior, Maryland was increasingly surrounded by Christian allies. One of the new arrivals was a man named John Luger, who was a college friend of Baltimore's from Oxford, and who was a former Anglican minister who had turned Catholic. He did, however, keep a lot of his Protestant ideals, such as the importance of reading the Bible and minimizing emphasis on the Pope. There's even some evidence that he went back to Protestantism later, but at the very least, he was the most Protestant-leaning a Catholic could be, and he became one of the leading officials of the colony. In 1636, the local Yoamicos left, and the settlers were given sole possession of St. Mary's and the surrounding land. They finally divided the land and town into lots, according to Baltimore's instructions, so the settlement took its final form. The people on Kent Island continued to do their own thing, and John Cotton and a man named Hamden each visited from New England for about six months each. Claiborne continued to collect rent from the Kent Islanders, and Clobbery and Company continued to send them provisions and men. But at the end of the year, they sent a man to replace Claiborne. In December, George Evelyn arrived at Kent Island with a power of attorney and orders to send Claiborne back to England 
to explain his behavior and adjust his accounts. Claiborne's management hadn't been profitable for the company, and they suspected that he had been dealing with them dishonestly. They also sent a new accountant named John Harriet, but he died almost immediately after arriving. Evelyn was actually Maryland settler Thomas Young's nephew. His father had been a member of the Virginia Company, and his brother had settled in Virginia a few years before. And he also knew the Calverts pretty well, though he didn't have a particularly high regard for them, considering them unintelligent, unsophisticated, and provincial. When Evelyn arrived at Kent Island, he only knew Clobbery and Company's side of the story, and that relied almost exclusively on Claiborne's description of events. Evelyn was also well aware of his own inexperience, so for the first few weeks he simply yielded to Claiborne as his superior. He didn't bring up the power of attorney, and instead acted as Claiborne's subordinate as he learned about the area. A few weeks after arriving, though, he went to St. Mary's to announce his arrival to Calvert, and there he found the governor pleasant, but firm regarding Maryland's territorial rights. Calvert showed him all relevant paperwork to substantiate his claims, and this was the first time that Evelyn had ever heard Baltimore's side of the story, and he was pretty convinced by it. He acknowledged Baltimore's rights to the area, and then he returned to Kent Island and announced that he was now in charge and would be taking over. This was a shocking reversal. Claiborne asked that Evelyn agree not to give any part of Kent Island to the Marylanders and not to remove any servants from the area, but Evelyn responded that he was in charge and that that wasn't open to negotiation. Then he showed Claiborne his power of attorney for the first time, and Claiborne knew that he could do nothing but leave Kent Island unconditionally in Evelyn's hands, and that's exactly what he did less than a week later. Evelyn then traveled to Jamestown and showed his power of attorney to West and the Virginia Council, and after a few weeks there, he returned to Kent Island and started governing, allying strongly with Calvert. He even sold cloth to Calvert, which Calvert used to buy corn from the Susquehannocks, an action which Claiborne's faction complained made it more difficult for the Kent Islanders to get food. Then he began to dismantle the settlement, preparing to move it to a better location within Maryland, and sending some of its trading goods to Virginia. Claiborne's supporters complained that Evelyn had turned the island into a wasteland. At least for the time being, Claiborne had been ousted from Kent Island, though, so he bought land from the Indians at a place called Palmer's Island. But Palmer's Island was again within the Maryland patent area. And this is the thing about Claiborne. At some points in this story, you can definitely see where his position might have possibly been somewhat reasonable, but then he does something like this. There's no good reason 
for Claiborne to have bought an island within Maryland at this point in the story. And to make matters worse, he then returned to England and wrote a petition to the king. In his petition, he listed his own grievances, including accusing Baltimore's officers of having violently assaulted his pinnaces and killed his men. Then he asked for Baltimore to be restrained from interfering with his trade. And then he asked for his own patent. And this patent would have given him the entire Chesapeake Bay and the entire length of the Susquehanna River in essentially an 800-mile-long stretch of the best land in North America, and a stretch of land which would have divided the Crown's possessions in two while giving Claiborne three-quarters of Baltimore's territory. Now, the only way that this patent would would possibly have been granted would have been if the people issuing it misunderstood what Claiborne was asking for because of their own meager geographic knowledge. And in fact, the patent was written in a fairly confusing way. The king referred the petition to the Lord's Commissioners for Plantations, and the Lord's Commissioners investigated Claiborne's grievances and ruled that the land in question belonged to Baltimore and that no trade could be carried on there without his consent. And they said that there was no cause for relief with regard to the violence that Claiborne complained about. And they didn't even bother addressing the land request. So this was a thorough defeat for Claiborne. There was some talk that Virginia was preparing to get a new trading company, which it would use to oppose Maryland, though. So back in the Chesapeake, Governor Calvert went to Virginia to discuss the situation with Kemp. Kemp told Calvert that he would do what he could to oppose the company and support Maryland, but their meeting was interrupted by news that Maryland settlers had been attacked by Nanticokes, and Calvert needed to get home to address the situation. After the settlers had been protected, Calvert, Hawley, and Luger signed a proclamation declaring that Kent Island must be brought into line. They had committed piracy, mutiny, and contempt. They disobeyed arrest warrants, and they'd used armed force to rescue prisoners. Worst of all, Marylanders suspected that Kent Islanders were conspiring with the Susquehannocks and Nanticokes to help drive the Marylanders out a worry which was substantiated by the attack which had occurred in Calvert's absence. To protect Maryland, if Kent Island wouldn't submit, Maryland would impose martial law, and it would execute people who refused to submit to its government. They also attained Claiborne and prepared to confiscate his property. So step one in taking over Kent Island Calvert wrote to its residents, promising to give them amnesty for past offenses if they agreed to submit to Baltimore, and saying that if they submitted, he'd even allow them to elect their own commander. They still refused, though, so Calvert appointed Evelyn as commander, and Evelyn returned to Kent Island to take over. It wasn't long before resistance turned violent, 
and Evelyn told Calvert he'd need military support to restore order. So Calvert sent Cornwallis to lead a 20-man armed force to push the island into submission and arrest the three leading troublemakers, Thomas Smith, Edward Beckler, and John Butler. That expedition was stopped by bad weather, but when the weather abated, Calvert himself led the next force. With Calvert's armed backup, Evelyn assembled the Kent Islanders and read his commission to them, as well as the Maryland Charter. And as he stood before them, Butler demanded to know whether Evelyn was an agent for Clobbery and Company or for the Marylanders, and Evelyn replied that he was an agent for both. And going on to explain that he had seen the patent and that they'd be better off living under Maryland's government than Virginia's anyway. They would actually have more trading rights if they submitted to Maryland. Everything would be better if they submitted to Maryland. But the island was still in chaos, so Calvert arrested Smith and Butler and took them to St. Mary's for trial. He then instructed the remaining residents to choose their Burgesses for the upcoming General Assembly and told them that he would come to survey the land with Luger the next summer and to give them valid patents. He then dismantled Clobbery and Company's post, sending the equipment and servants either back to England or to Virginia. And to help with this, he contracted a man named Richard Ingle. You may want to remember that name. When he returned to St. Mary's, Calvert left three people to act as conservators of peace on the island, authorizing them to hold courts leet for the minor cases and to issue warrants for major ones. Then they went to Palmer's Island, dismantled Claiborne Settlement, and replaced it with a fort, which they called Fort Conquest. After this, Claiborne got a grant in the Bahamas within the Providence Island Company's patent for Rich Island, named for the family of the Earl of Warwick. All this out of the way, it was finally time for the meeting of the Second General Assembly, with fewer than 20 people present, two representatives for each of the four hundreds, two for Kent Island, plus three councillors and the governor, and a couple of assorted other people. At this point in time, some of the shorter indentured servant terms had started to expire, so the colony's voting population had begun to increase. The servants, which were now getting their freedom, were largely the younger sons of good families, and there were also craftsmen whose presence in the colony was so strongly valued that they ended up with more favorable conditions and bigger land allotments than most settlers. None of this actually mattered much at this assembly, though, because the first order of business at the assembly was for Calvert to announce that Baltimore had rejected the laws passed by the colonists at the first assembly because all laws were to originate with him, and the colonists were only granted veto power. By the terms of the charter, and this is 100% true, 
legislation was supposed to originate with the Lord Proprietor. The charter said that the Lord Proprietor was to pass the laws with the assent of the colonists, not the other way around. So in accordance with the charter, Baltimore had sent his own list of laws to be presented at the Second Assembly. Now, this dispute is actually extremely interesting because it's the first instance of a debate which is essentially unique to Maryland, but which will pop up occasionally throughout our discussion of Maryland's early history. The thing is, like New England, Maryland was created on an idealistic or ideological, depending on how you look at it, framework. And New England had had conflicts about exactly how far it wanted to take its ideology. But unlike New England, which wanted to sever itself from tradition, Maryland actually wanted to hearken back to old traditions, not just in terms of Catholicism, though that was an issue, but also in terms of the structure of society itself. What Baltimore had was a borderline feudal charter, and that did come with its benefits. Benefits which had attracted quite a few people to Maryland in the first place. Non-indentured servants could enjoy a higher degree of personal liberty and autonomy in Maryland than anywhere else in the English-speaking world, but that came with institutions and practices which were pretty much anachronistic in the eyes of most Englishmen. The idea of going back to a system in which Baltimore was above them in the same way that the king was above them, just to a lesser degree, was rather shocking in the eyes of even the most anti-parliamentarian, pro-royalist 17th century Englishmen. It hadn't even occurred to the colonists that they might be in a system in which they didn't have the power to draft laws. And you can also see a little bit of that in the approach of Luger to Catholicism. He might have been drawn to Catholicism, but he still retained his belief in reading the Bible and distancing himself from the Pope. But at the assembly, the issue was political. And for the next week or more, the assembly debated. Some members asked how the colony would be governed if both the assembly and Baltimore kept rejecting each other's laws. And others said that they would simply live under English common law until the issue was settled. Calvert evidently took a neutral position acknowledging that he felt that laws should originate with the people, but emphasizing that the laws sent over were extremely reasonable. And in addition, there was a more practical issue at stake. Calvert's commission as governor didn't give him the authority to deal with offenses punishable by death or mutilation under English common law, though it did under the law that Baltimore had sent over. And remember, they had two prisoners awaiting trial for piracy and murder, both of which were death penalty offenses. So how would they indict, try, and sentence these people without the laws to do so? 
Ultimately, they decided to completely reject Baltimore's laws and instead to pass a new set of 41 laws for Baltimore to approve. And in the meanwhile, to get around the trial issue, the sheriff would impanel the assembly into a grand inquest, meaning he turned it into a common law-style legislative jury, which could investigate crimes, hear both sides, and act as a court, and then pass sentence. That was dubiously legal, but it worked. So against Smith, Calvert produced two dispositions, one for piracy and the other for the murder of William Ashmore, who had been killed in the skirmish, and Smith pled not guilty to both charges. After hearing the case, the court found him guilty by a vote of 18 to 1, and Calvert condemned him to death by hanging and said that his goods should be forfeited, except that his wife should be left with her dower. After the sentence was passed, Smith demanded the benefit of clergy, which would have protected him from the court's condemnation, and Calvert replied that there was no such privilege for a man accused of piracy, and that if he had wanted the benefit of the clergy, he needed to demand it before judgment, not after. Smith then petitioned Baltimore for a pardon, but Calvert let him go. He had wanted to stop Kent Island resistance and establish Baltimore's authority, and he had effectively done that. He also didn't need to be killing people when his court was only dubiously legal. So he released Smith and also let Butler off with a warning, saying that he'd be punished if he continued his opposition. After this, the assembly adjourned as Calvert awaited further instructions from England. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week.